Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and in this podcast I ask politicians and opinion formers about the people, places and experiences that have impacted their thinking. In this episode I am joined by Gillian Keegan, Minister for Apprenticeships and Skills in the Department for Education and MP for Chichester. It was through a chance encounter that Gillian embarked on the route of becoming a Member of Parliament and we talk about the very special person who was pivotal in that career change and of many other female Conservative MPs for that matter. We also discuss the importance of skills and lifelong learning. Gillian is well known for being the first apprentice to become Minister for Apprenticeships but what most people don't realise is that she is also a Sloan Fellow from the London Business School, which is a pretty distinguished master's programme designed for experienced business executives. We also talk about the influence Liverpool and Madrid have had on her thinking in life, as well as her grandfather's miner's lamp and the importance of skills in the economic recovery. This episode is supported by BAE Systems, one of the largest UK employers. BAE Systems helps its customers to stay a step ahead when protecting people and national security, critical infrastructure and vital information. They are using their knowledge and technologies to reduce the environmental impacts of their activities and have set themselves the target of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their operations by 2030. With £3 billion of export sales from the UK annually, BAE Systems has a central role in the engineering and manufacturing fabric of a country, supporting 124,000 high-value jobs across the UK through a supply chain of some 6,000 companies. They have committed to developing high-quality skills and invest nearly £100 million per annum in training and education programmes in the UK. This investment includes training some 2,000 apprentices and 500 graduates currently. They also help disadvantage young people into employment through their support of a kickstart and movement to work programmes. Gillian, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? You have for a long time been one of my favourite MPs, uh, a real role model, I have to say. So thank you so much for coming on. And um, to start off, why don't we delve straight into what person has had a real impact on your thinking? Oh, thanks, Laura. Thanks for those lovely words. Um, that's a nice way to start. Um, I think, I mean, there's probably a couple of people I would say. The first is is probably the guy at my school who believed in me, who gave me a bit of confidence and also uh, led me onto an apprenticeship, uh, really, at 16. That was a guy called Mr. Ashcroft. Um, and effectively, what he did uh, was uh, there was a bit of a rule at the time that only girls, girls could only do certain subjects and boys could only do the engineering and stuff like that. And it wasn't because of any sexism. It's because of the way they scheduled PE, believe it or not. Um, and uh, anyway, I wasn't happy with this my mom sort of went up to school and kind of said she wants to do engineering and technical drawing and, and all of these subjects um, and anyway Mr they couldn't accommodate me so Mr Ashcroft stayed after school for three days a week till 5 30 for two years to basically um, get me up to O level as it was then standard in all of those and he you know I've never forget that sacrifice because he, he a he set me on a path where I really appreciated technology and B he he got me to a position where I got extra O levels so uh, I, I got 10 O levels from a com comprehensive school in Knowsley which which was quite impressive even at the time and and then he got me uh, you know he sort of uh, led me down the apprenticeship route to continue my studies and that's been a really 
life-changing moment. Um, and without him, none of that would have happened. So I think that's the, the first one. And then the second one, the second big person who's influenced uh, life-changing ways is uh, Baroness Anne Jenkin, because, you know, there I was nearly 30 years uh, in, in the business world and a random encounter with her has completely um, put me on a new path in the world of politics and obviously got to meet you and got to do all, all the fantastic things that you do as, as an MP for a constituency and now as a minister. Firstly, Mr. Ashcroft, that is incredible. That is just a really nice story, actually. That's that's so inspiring. And the role and power of teachers goes to show. And obviously, you're now in the Department of Education, which is so fitting. Um, but on to Anne Jenkin. I mean, I mean, I've I've heard the story before, and it's an awesome one. So why don't you recount how you ran into Anne and and what did she say to you? And and you know, how did how did she woo you? Uh, well, well, the first thing is my the state of mind I was in. I'd done nearly 30 years in business. I'd lived and worked in different parts of the world. I'd really enjoyed it. But I, you know, I was at the point where I'd been taking uh, 100 flights a year. I'd, I'd lived in Madrid for eight years. My husband had lived in the UK. It had been full on. It had been fantastic. But it's sort of I was at the stage where I didn't want the next 30 years to be like that because uh, you do give up a lot as well. So I was in that state of mind of thinking, you know, what should I do next? I want I'd come back to the UK. I wanted to sort of a bit, be a bit more rooted in my community, I suppose. That was what I was searching for. And during that time, uh, we went we went to the theatre, which it's in itself was uh, a pretty uh, big achievement because my husband also you know works all over the place and uh, you know the chance was being there and it was in the week and we were at the theatre and we met somebody uh, we both knew uh, who worked for a Japanese company and and he was with Anne and they both knew each other because they uh, had kids that had gone to the same school and you know all of these kids were now in their 20s and 30s but they'd kept in touch and uh, during the interval we just chatting you know you get your your glass of wine we were chatting and during the 15 minutes she said to me you know have you ever thought of being an MP and I think he might have suggested it as well it just very quickly got onto uh, the MP story and I said no I had never ever thought about it which sounds a bit lame actually doesn't it in comparison to a lot of my colleagues who sort of woke up at the age of 12 and wanted to be prime minister or whatever and it does sound a bit true. lame <laughs> to be 46 <laughs> and not even have given it a thought um, but um, and that's how old I was and and you know I, but I am very curious so she said come for a cup of tea in the House of Lords I went we had a long conversation I'll never forget it actually it was uh, you know sat in in the tea room in the not the tea room the um uh, the, the Pugin room yeah mm. with a cup of tea and and what she basically made me see was that I had a lot to offer and I think she's done that for so many people I mean she's really focused on diversity in politics largely on more women but she also has a a, 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 you know, very good look at, at also the experiences, the diversity of experiences, uh, the diversity of backgrounds. And, you know, she said to me, you know, coming from Nosley and being a conservative in itself is relatively rare. Um, and, you know, the business background you've had and your sort of start in life as well is, is there's a lot of people who have a similar start to me. Probably more people have a similar start to me than, you know, go to fantastic schools and go to Oxford to, to study PPE. And she just said, you know, you really could um, help because you, you, you've got that sort of understanding background, but also the business experience you've got, you know, nearly 30 years of kind of achieving stuff in business is something that, you know, we want more of in politics. And so she was very convincing saleswoman. And it's important because I don't think many people and certainly many women have that 
confidence from the get-go that you know this is what they're going to do and and how to navigate what is actually quite a difficult route to get into and she not only did she help give me the confidence um, but she really helped navigate the whole route as well she really did um, sort of you know tell me you know all the things you needed to do to be able to get selected. Mm. Yeah and I mean she's been on this uh, podcast uh, in the last series and and her story is phenomenal uh, but I think you are you are one of my favorite case studies because you also then went on to become um, director of women to win so you know you really uh, really embedded yourself and actually in that role you know also did a lot of what Anne did for people like yourself or for other women so you know it's really cool it's like a domino effect. Yeah, and I now know loads of the women candidates and many of them who came in in the last election uh, because, you know, I'd met them at some point. You know, we'd either gone out to events to try and encourage more women to come forward or I'd, I'd met them at certain training sessions. And it is so rewarding. I mean, gosh, I mean, she must... I mean, she's relentless anyway, so she probably doesn't feel that rewarded. She probably got, just got another goal that she's she set for herself. But, you know, to sit there now and see uh, all the women that we have in Parliament with, with all the range of backgrounds as well and all the range of experience. And they are they're just brilliant. I'm really proud of my female colleagues. It just feels like, you know, there's 80, 87 of us now. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. And it's it feels it, it feels like a very close group because, you know, all of us pretty much have been nurtured by Anne. Yeah, incredible. Fairy godmother. She is, <laughs> She's yeah. A fairy godmother. Yeah, really, really lovely. So, what is it that sort of works to encourage? Well, obviously, every woman is different, but um, what have you learned through your time, either through witnessing Anne or as director of Women to Win? How do you get women interested? And, and what are the sort of the blocks that, you know, prevent them from doing it and that you have to sort of break through? Um, I think the first thing is really the confidence and making people understand that it doesn't really matter what kind of journeys they've had. They really have got some great experiences that, uh, that, that they can offer. And ultimately, the role as an MP, the, the one I think many of my uh, colleagues love is the constituency role. It's that it's it's the people that you serve the people you represent particularly those that need your help you know it's there's nothing more rewarding than somebody coming in at a real low point in their life almost desperate at that point because they've tried everything else and you being able to help them it's the most rewarding thing um so that's that's something that you know is really important that people understand the breadth of the role because a lot of people see politics on the telly they might look at question time and think god i don't want to do that or they might look at a chamber a rowdy debate and think why would you want to spend your life rowing across those aisles yeah. but actually most of it is really much more constructive than that so i think that's the first thing she opens up the roles um she she um and, and you know that's that's kind of something that most people need to feel that they understand it and the confidence and you know you'll be better at some things and you, people will always have something to overcome public speaking is is often something that people feel very nervous about and I think everyone across the country does you know I remember when I worked in a company once talking to somebody about uh, giving presentations and this woman said to me I'd rather 
stand on the edge of a cliff and somebody's put somebody pour spiders down my back that's how bad I feel about it and I thought okay maybe that maybe this isn't the job for you then uh, so in terms of sale but you know some people yeah. are absolutely terrified of it so trying to overcome that is uh, is is you know to build the confidence to do that is, is really quite important there's then really practical barriers so if you've got a young family how you know the first thing mm. you think about is how on earth does all this work with a young family I wasn't in that position but many of my colleagues are and so they have to figure that out and it has got a friendlier workplace from that environment but there's still mm. more to do um, and then there's the, you know the other aspect which I think has become more prominent recently which is is the social media the abuse um, yeah. the threats um, the um, impact on your family of that and it's not direct threats uh, necessarily to your family although some some people's family have suffered that but it's it's how your family feel about it they you know it, it's they, they feel um, almost powerless to help what they see as a massive injustice um, of what people are saying about you you know almost as though you're this subhuman being and I think that's also quite tricky and it will put a lot of people off and most of us probably are slightly ignorant to that which is why we kind of get involved and then once you're involved you, you know there are ways that you can manage it a little bit better not going on Twitter is a, a, a quite a big one and quite a few of my colleagues have uh, come off Twitter because they they know it's it doesn't really add much value doesn't get them to their constituents and it's really just um, full of uh, pain uh, from a from a personal viewpoint yeah no absolutely so moving on to place what um place or you know you're allowed you've become a bit more flexible through the course of this podcast you're allowed more than one um what place or places have really left a mark on your life and also impacted your thinking and possibly politics well the one if I had just one it's Liverpool more than anything you know I grew up in Liverpool um you know I grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s in Liverpool and uh, you know it really even um you know the reason I'm a conservative because I think it's fair to say in Knowsley um, it's not the natural home of conservatives I don't think I ever met another one or anybody else who admitted to voting conservative although since I've become an MP one of my uncles crept up to me at a family and whispered in my ear that he'd voted conservative but it was very much <laughs> a big secret but um, but you know it, it, Liverpool uh, in you know the things you know I started work at 16 in a car factory I saw you know there was a lot of changes in the 80s you know manufacturing I was part of uh, we're witnessing that and Liverpool City Council going bankrupt well you know you didn't have to be around in the 80s you could be there right now and exactly the same thing is happening almost uh, in terms of uh, not bankruptcy but those sort of really uh, bad um, um, well, dealings uh, and and the, the the sort of corruption that's uh, that's that's involved, and those things really shaped my politics. That's how I became conservative, a natural conservative in a way, because I kind of looked at the alternative and what Margaret Thatcher had been talking about and what she was trying to do uh, in terms of changing the economy, and really how she was sort of taking on the unions. And I could see that that. The, the road we were on with the unions in the 70s and the 80s was not going to take us anywhere. In fact, it wasn't taking us anywhere. It was taking us uh, backwards, you know, and, and we were in a highly competitive, globalised world as though you could sort of choose to remain where you were. Uh, and that was the, that's actually always struck me, um, you know, about about, you know, our, our, you know, we sort of level up. Uh, and I always felt like that. I felt it was a leveling up agenda even then. Um, and I've always felt, you know, the other, the other parties kind of level down, you know, try to get everybody 
you know, down to some to some base level. Um, so I, I just that that's kind of really influenced my politics, really influenced me, um, influenced lots of things in my life. Most of my friends are still back in Liverpool. But then I think probably Tokyo and Madrid, I would have to add to that because I did uh, when I was uh, in my mid 20s, go to work in Tokyo um, for a couple of years, which was a, a life changing uh, experience because it was just so different. It was the most different place I've ever been. Uh, it was a complete contrast to Liverpool or London or the UK. Um, and just working there, um, you know, as a woman in the 90s uh, was it's tough, but it was a, a life sort of changing experience. And then I lived in Madrid for eight years. So, um, you know, I, 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 I love Spain. I feel I've got loads of mates there. I've still got a flat there, actually, which I rent out because I left uh, in two, at the end of 2009. So after the financial crash, and uh, let's just say it, it, ha it has struggled to recover, actually, ever since then, uh, economically. So I always, you know, I've seen a lot of the impact of um, recessions as well, I suppose. That's something I've witnessed uh, at various times. And the impact that has on people, uh, which is what makes now being in, in a position in politics where we are right now you know looking at the impacts of the pandemic the massive road ahead in terms of economic recovery plus all the other things we've got to change to find myself in this job you know the skills uh, apprenticeships and skills role at a time when it's going to be vital to our country really to get these things right but also to the individuals the life-changing impact it has to individuals so mm. um yeah I feel I feel like a lot of my life experiences in in different parts of the world have kind of been leading to this point exactly no it's it's really apt and so one of the things you're probably most known for or best known for is that you're the first former apprentice to hold the office of minister for apprenticeships um so obviously that's one of the first thing that springs to mind right when, when i think of you what people don't tend to know about you which is so awesome is that you also you know your business background but also the fact that you are a Sloan Fellow from London's London Business School. So talk us through that journey. How did you start as an apprentice and end up at London Business School doing a Sloan Fellowship? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you asked about that because I don't think many people really uh, know, uh, well, first mm. of all, know that I'm a Sloan Fellow. Secondly, uh, if, they, if they've even heard of it, know what it is. Um, and effectively, it's... Um, it's it's kind of like an MBA, but it's for more senior people. So you've got to have done, I think, 15 years at least as a senior exec and and then pass the test to get onto it. Um, it's only run in MIT, Stanford and London Business School. So it's quite a sort of exclusive wow. course. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's basically where sort of people in their sort of mid-career go to uh, really top up their skills so I think it's it's kind of like you know what I'm trying to persuade other people to do now is you know the world changes around you quite a lot um, you need to top up your skills my apprenticeship was fantastic I started at 16 I worked there for eight years I went you know around the the whole of the factory learning how the whole thing sort of fits together which was you know just a brilliant experience plus they sponsored me one day a week to go uh, up to degree level but that 
had been in the 80s and early 90s. And if you think about the world and the world of technology and how we do things and the business operating models and increased globalization and consolidation of tech, there's so many things that have happened. And the Sloan Fellowship is basically a chance to go back and not only get higher level skills, but really update yourself. Um, and it's got a big focus on leadership and strategy. And it really does look to create the, you know, the leaders of the future. Usually many of them go into to business. Um, or stay in business because it's largely got business related things but it's it is a fantastic course and you know I did it when I was 42 and I think first of all getting on the thing was really tough I mean you know you had to get really really high GMAT scores which I you know I'm not oh, ashamed God, to admit yeah. it took me took me several times and several uh, courses that I basically paid to go on to get quick enough to be able to do this yeah. test because it's also timed um, so, so that was the... I remember looking into that because I was considering doing an MBA at one point and then with books I have to admit it was probably 60 or 70 percent of a reason other than you know being able to afford it and need a scholarship but it's like really put me off so well I think, done. I think the book I remember sitting uh on a beach in my holidays and I think the book uh it was probably thicker than my sunbed uh in terms of the, the the thickness of it I still remember trying to read it on the beach and trying to do these mental maths and get oh. you know you have to get really really quick uh at doing it so and that's a challenge when in, in, in your in your 40s because you you know you haven't done you're not in that sort of mindset so yeah. that was the first thing but then going back to school I remember because it's actually the first time I'd ever gone full-time to tertiary education I'd done everything else part-time and I'd done executive development programs with the institute today in Presa in Madrid you know I'd done lots of other training but I'd always done it part-time I'd always done it whilst working and I remember it was funny you know I, I went there in uh, in January 2010 and it was really bad snow and I bought Converse because I just kind of felt like I had to get into that student mood and I had a backpack Converse and anyway, it was a disaster because it was about four inches of snow uh, so I slipped along uh, you know Regent's Park to get there and it's like it, it really does put you back to school you know it, it's it's a very scary but rejuvenating let's say um, situation <laughs> yeah. I, it, I was the only um, uh, British woman um, on the on the course really? um, yeah it was very international people from all over the world I've got very very good friends from it but it really was um it was a tough course but it was a fantastic course and really everything you know from corporate finance to uh, sort of strategy leadership um digital data the art and science of modeling you know really really high level of training um so i did that and i did then go back into the corporate world but it was actually whilst i was there that i decided to look to do something else because there's a there's a professor there called linda gratton she's written quite a lot of books yeah. and she basically turned she turned up and she said you know many people many of you i can't remember what percentage 20 30 percent or so i've got a decent chance of living to 100 and everyone's like oh god i hope it's me you know that's great news and and then she says, but you know, you've got a hundred percent chance of working till you're nearly 70. That's for sure true. And then you start to, and she said, and what you need to think about, because she said that sometimes sounds horrifying to people, but what you need to think about is you need to think about what is your second career going to be? What is your third career going to be? How are you going to get the, the skills to be able to navigate your way through this and the skills to get to, to the point where you can kind of choose more what you want to do when you're older and that kind of stuff. And it was that that gave me permission to think about a second career. What was my second career going to be? Um, now, I did get pulled back into the corporate world for a couple of years, but it was that that sort of gave me permission to think that's 
a doable thing. You can do something completely different that you've never thought of. Because of course, my apprenticeship, you know, I didn't think of what I wanted to do. It always makes me laugh now when people talk about careers. I don't think many 16 year olds know what they want to do. They just know they want to do something fun, interesting, that's going to earn them money, give them some skills. And so the apprenticeship was brilliant for that because you saw all the jobs in, in 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 the car factory and you could kind of figure out which ones you thought were a good fit for you. Um, but you know most people don't get that you just randomly end up in places Um, but this was like you know I I actually will have a a chance to choose when I'm older when I'm more knowledgeable and when I've got maybe a little bit more financial security so that was that was kind of the journey but yeah the Sloan Fellowship was was another big part of of putting my myself and my head in a different space yeah no that's brilliant I've definitely heard of Linda Gratton yeah, she talks about the future of work a lot as well, which I think, mm. based on what's happened with the pandemic, um, she was uh, very much, uh, well, had a lot of foresight because she was talking about that flexibility, that blended, that ability to work in different ways um, and probably more um, freelance ways as well. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That is really cool. So now that you are Minister for Apprenticeships and Skills and you know have experienced uh apprenticeships firsthand and re relearning and you you can speak from experience and all these topics which is just brilliant but looking now sort of you know especially with covid you already talked about the impact of recessions looking at sort of the economic recovery that we need to go through what is the importance of skills as part of that well i think all the key components of our economic recovery, all of the plans, all of the things we have in place are all highly dependent on skills, but they're all highly dependent on skills where we have a massive shortage or we just don't have them, they're new skills. Um, so if you think about you know, some of the key things, you know, building back better the huge infrastructure investment that the, the government's making, and not only our government, by the way, many countries around the world, the first thing governments will do to try and recover their economies is do what governments can do, bring forward investment, invest in infrastructure. It's a very common reaction to any recession, actually. Um, so what you're going to find is Every country at the same time is going to be trying to build back better. Some of them do even have the same slogan. I think the US uh, have the same slogan, right? And so when you think about the impact that has on any and all jobs related to the construction industry, there are massive shortages that are going to be, uh, you know, that we can see ahead of us in the construction industry. And, you know, we really do. And there's so many jobs in the construction industry. You know, people normally think of, you know, bricklayers or electricians or plumbers, but the whole host of jobs uh, in that industry um, that are required to basically make sure that that investment, we can create jobs, we can bring forward the infrastructure and we can sort of uh, build back better. Then we've got the other huge uh, objective that we have, which is net zero by 2050. And if you look at net zero, I'm co-chairing a green jobs task force with um, the energy minister, Anne-Marie Trevelyan at the moment. And you look at there's two real key challenges. One is all the people who've got skills in industries that will become redundant, that will be replaced with new stuff so you know oil and gas for renewables or you know combustion engines and everyone involved both designing them building them and maintaining them to electric vehicles all of the changes you know even the farming practices all of the changes that uh, will, will be required need skills and they're skills that we either have to upskill or create uh, people uh, who have those skills mm-hmm. and the one thing that I think is um, a real opportunity for us 
is we have massive skill shortages in the country. And to have that at the same time as you have growing unemployment is the tragedy that we're trying to avoid. And that's why we've basically put a lot of investment into uh, you know, incentivizing apprenticeships and traineeships. The Prime Minister's announced a lifetime skills guarantees to give mm. every adult permission to retrain and to fund and support them. And, you know, it's trying and to get that, that through. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing the announcement that uh, adults are going to be given free courses. Um, I think is that that was announced last year. Is that going coming into effect this year? Yeah, it's already come into effect as of the 1st of April, uh, 406 new courses or wow. courses in all kinds of things. And what we've done is basically um, made sure that they match to skills shortages as opposed to areas yeah. that we don't think there's going to be a big skills need in the future, or indeed there may be even oversupply of skills in some places. Um, but the other thing which is really cool, which we've piloted, so a lot of people may not have seen it, um, we've done about 80 of them and there's many many more to come is these things called skills boot camps because a oh. lot of adults think you know do I want to, I mean I enjoyed the experience of getting the backpack you know packing my pencil case and buying the converse because I kind of enjoyed going back because I'd never done it before and it, it, it just yeah it was an opportunity when I went to London Business School but a lot of adults either don't have the space uh, to be able to do that you know you have to work as well um, or they, they you know they, they just have so much so many demands on their time so these skills boot camps are fantastic. I've been to see a couple. They're sort of 12 to 16 weeks intensive. And they've done a lot of them actually in digital because digital skills as well as construction are the other massive yeah. global shortage. Everything's yeah. gone digital. There's not a single thing that isn't digital. And, you know, when people say they want digital marketing, it's because basically everybody used to go to shops and the marketing was all about merchandising and your window displays and your, your catalogs or your brochures or whatever. Now it is really all about your online experience and that's digital marketing so there's so much demand for those kind of digital skills as well so we did some boot camps and people could come you know women who were returning after having their family you know they had no uh, experience in this whatsoever that digital revolution had, had happened while they were um, you know bringing up their families or whatever uh, people who'd done completely different careers it was it you know it's very open in terms of um, uh, people who can get on them and you know it's 12 to 16 weeks really intensive and at the end of it you come out with skills that um, are really valuable in cybersecurity or digital or, or marketing or data analytics. And it's been really successful because it's done with companies as well who basically have a skill shortage. So you get yeah. a guaranteed interview and many of them um, are, many of them are getting jobs. So we're just rolling that out and we're also including it in other things like uh, construction skills. So we've got welding and um, electricians. And even if you don't get the skills to be you know, a completely qualified electrician in 16 weeks, Weeks, you basically get a long way down so you can cut a lot off the apprenticeship but what it means is when you join the workplace you do have a lot of skills already you might not be a fully formed electrician but you're really valuable to a company because you can rewire some things under supervision or whatever so it's a brilliant way quick and short and sharp 
of getting adults into their second career, in, into a really valuable second career. And the reason I love this is it's not only the opportunity it brings, but there's a lot of adults, and these will be the kids I went to school with. You know, 92% of the kids in my school left without the, um, you know, four or five GCSEs or O levels mm. as they were at the time. And now, if you think about, you know, when we say half of our adults don't have the skills, etc., well, that's because they're basically just older, right? They're the same kids, but they're now 20 or 30 years older. And that shot hasn't come their way again, either because they've been, you know, busy. life is, is sometimes, you know, all consuming. Um, they've been really busy and you just get trapped in this sort of you have to work to pay your bills, but you don't have the space to create these skills. So that is what I really love about it. And I've met so many people now who've got on them. The work coaches in the job centers tell you about them as well. And they go on these and they say, I can't believe, I cannot believe I've got this opportunity. I always quite fancied this at school, but this opportunity never came my way. And, you know, I've tinkered around with a car, but now I can't believe I'm on my way to become an electrician. And, it, you know, I'm, and, you know, I'm getting an apprenticeship that's going to, you know, give me these skills um, and there's also lots of different things I mean you know photonics which is deeply technical area of lasers and data and you know th these are skills that we are all across the country going to offer these skills boot camps it's so exciting and that's all part of the prime minister's lifetime skills guarantee so there's full-time courses there's the same courses that you'll be able to take part-time and blended and then there's the skills boot camps uh, are, the, are the sort of pillars of that and I hope it can revolutionize opportunity level up at any age, any stage, wherever you are in the country. I'm really excited by them. That's very inspiring and so important and a great, well, such an important time to be uh, doing that. How, how does that compare to other countries? Yeah, well, we've done, um, so there's a lot of work in this area at the moment and we've got a white paper, a skills for jobs white paper, and we've got a bill coming through parliament. And the reason we're doing that is because we have compared our systems to other countries and we're not doing as well at the moment. We have too many um, people who are not getting the access to the right skills training, too many people not going uh, down the technical routes or the, the vocational routes, too many people possibly going off to university and then not getting graduate jobs at the end of it. I think there's about 34% of graduates now who are not in graduate jobs. And, you know, and that's because they, they, they didn't know actually there were any other routes available to them. And so the, the whole uh, sort of skills uh, white paper and skills for jobs revolution is to make sure we improve the system all the way through. So it's putting a big focus on really high quality technical options and alternative to A-levels called T-levels. It's putting a lot more um, emphasis on careers and that's even uh, from a younger age from when you first start secondary school. Um, you know, and the careers um, interactions you get in school, every child going to have the, the, the chance to do is to interact with real businesses, you know, go into uh, businesses, ask lots of questions, see the kind of jobs that are available, see what I saw when I was going around my apprenticeship, all the different jobs, because pretty much every industry has every job. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to, this is a name drop for you, I was talking to uh, David Putnam and, and Barbara Broccoli about creative industries and the skills required yesterday. And they basically said, this is the second biggest industry in our country. We're really good at it. We're really successful. Um, you know, and, and Barbara Broccoli was, obviously is the producer of the James Bond films, you know, and her dad obviously started that. And we were talking about the skills. And I said, I can't believe you've got a skills shortage. I mean, who doesn't want to work in these industries? They're so glamorous. But when you look at some elements of the structure, Structure, the type of skills we need, the roots into those skills, they're not there. So we're looking to build 
all of the routes so that all of these industries, um, whether it's, um, you know, Google, Amazon, web services, the NHS, uh, our defense, we're spending an extra 24 billion in defense, all of these that people have routes into those areas. And we really make sure that, that you know, that's, that's much more widespread and particularly in areas of the country where those opportunities are just never offered. So that's a big, big part of the revolution that we're going to go through. When we compared ourselves to some other countries, we don't do as well as that. By the time we're finished, we'll do way better. That's my goal anyway. Very good. So moving on to the object, what object has impacted your thinking? Um, I don't know about impacted my thinking, but it all, but it's a constant, yeah. yeah, a constant reminder, I think is probably in my parliamentary office, I am very proud to have my grandfather's miner's lamp. Mm. And uh, he, um, it, it's a quite, I mean, it, he worked in, in, in the pits all, all of his life. And it, for some reason or other, I don't quite know how this happened, but um, he was looking after us one day. There must have been some childcare issues. And anyway, he ended up taking my sister and, uh, and me to work. And we actually went down the coal mile, the coal mine. And I, we, we were kind of, I don't know, about eight or nine or something like that. And I, I remember it vividly. It takes forever. I mean, literally, you're going down a mile or more. You're in this um, big crate with, uh, you know, the metal shutters surrounded by miners, all of whom have got the lights on the head, you know, and, and, and the, 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 the sort of, you know, sort of clothes on. You get down there. It is so claustrophobic trying to breathe. It is obviously pitch black. And then they go off into these tunnels and basically chip away at the walls for the whole day. And when people in the 80s got very sort of sentimental about the coal industry, I couldn't really understand it because the health and safety of, of, of the people who work there as well. I mean, my granddad broke his back eventually in a mining accident and mm. I couldn't understand why everyone wanted to work there. Now, I know it was a financial thing, right? There, there, there was uh, you got paid extra money or whatever. But once we'd got in ourselves into a position and certainly now with renewables and stuff, you know, I remember when I stood in St. Helens um, in, in 2015 uh, and, it, it, you know, it was 2015. It used to have six coal mines and, you know, the, the people who were labour activists were shouting at me, you know, you closed our coal mines, the Tories closed our coal mines. I said, are you kidding me? Do you really think that your kids would want to do that for a job now? Can you imagine your children? I can't imagine wanting to do it at any point but it was a really tough job it's a really dangerous job it was a really unhealthy job and I just found the atmosphere was claustrophobic and and I just thought you know that that that's um you know I'm, I'm very grateful for everybody who did do that job and I have huge admiration for them but I don't aspire uh, for lots of our population to be in those jobs today right and 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 so that's probably had a big impact on on me um reminding me that you know that of what the reality was of people doing those jobs now I know they loved doing them because what it meant is they 
earned a bit more than they would have done in probably other roles and and you know it gave them and they were family men who did it for their for their families they were all men um but it was tough and it isn't something that i think is something we want to go back to so it always astonishes me when people talk about that as though it was the good old days because for me i was very struck by that and i thought you know maybe that made me work hard in school as well because i thought god almighty you know this is it. i want to have more choices than this yeah that's interesting so now that you you know you mentioned your parliamentary office and um i mean listeners won't be able to see but i can see you because we're recording on zoom i suspect you're on your ministerial office at the moment I am uh, so uh, you've um, you're now uh, obviously well you're living the life of a politician and a minister so living the life of a politician to the full has it met your expectations is it what you expected it to be or it's completely exceeded my expectations and that is after uh, you know a sales pitch from uh, from baroness Anne jenkin which uh, you know uh, is 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 pretty full on but it's completely exceeded my expectations so the, there's a number of factors to that the first is actually it's much friendlier than you think inside the building um you know there is a bit of theater around some of the uh, chamber performance or whatever but actually many MPs get on a lot better than the impression that we leave mm. uh, perhaps the public with. So that's the first thing. It's very friendly. And in a way, we're all in the same boat, right? You know, we have different views on things. In some cases, the views aren't wildly different on many things. Um, and, and, and all of us really do want to make a difference um, to be able to improve things for people. So I think that's a genuine, genuine um, common cause, as it were. The other thing is the amount of things you can get involved in there is it, it's almost unlimited how many things you can get involved in you know i remember one of the first things uh, the one of the first campaigns i got involved with which was or can be which was a drug um that we were um it, it hadn't been approved by nice it was a very expensive drug um for kids with cystic fibrosis i had no clue about kids with cystic fibrosis i had no clue about this drug i had no clue about this cause but in my local hospital i met i'll still remember charlotte uh, and a little boy jack who explained it all to me and as a result of that one encounter, I could join that campaign, which eventually there was loads of people in the, in the campaign, not least the parents of every kid in the country with cystic fibrosis. Um, but, you know, in the end, that drug became available, you know, so that you can join any of these campaigns and you can get involved in things. And then the third thing is the constituency side of it. People say, oh, you know, MPs, they're all the same. They can't make a difference. Completely wrong. You know, I've got people out, out who've been incorrectly uh, imprisoned abroad home i've got people into care homes when they didn't have um they, they were getting refused they couldn't get they've got people school places i've got homeless people into homes homeless people into jobs i've helped uh, a number of people get new bathrooms or kitchens from their housing association or carpets um you know people uh, get opportunities jobs training and all of them individual things. And that's because come, people come and ask you and you basically can help them. And the power of being an MP is, is a convening role. It's It's got some status if you write on behalf of that person, who, by the way, will have tried so many different avenues to get whatever it is they needed. And, you know, you know the computer said no or the person said no. And you can unlock that. And that's so rewarding. So I think it's exceeded my expectations, the role in, in, in general. And the ministerial role, I never even thought about it. You know, I hadn't really 
um, considered, you know, ministers or, or what the role is. It's an odd role. It's an odd role for somebody who's worked in business for 30 years, because in, in business, you know, you set the strategy, you build the teams, you hire and fire the right people, you set the uh, objectives, you make sure everything's aligned and you deliver. And if you don't deliver, you, you, you know, your, your company's in trouble, you have to make people redundant or, you know, you're uh, seen as a poor performer and out you go. So you have to deliver. In this role, you've got, you, you have to deliver. It's really important. People are relying on you. People are depending on you. But the delivery arm is this completely separate organization that you try to peek into called the civil service. And, you know, but it's its own, it's its own organization. And it's not one that you, um, control or whatever so and delivery is not something that is second nature even so we've just been a lot of us have been on on courses now they're trying to improve this across the civil service but also ministers uh, with the uh, infrastructure and projects authority because the many many things don't get implemented very well and it's why is that you know why is it uh, some of these things just just really don't work and it's really trying to improve that it's so that's just, that's something I'm kind of grappling with. Most people probably don't have the sort of long business experience, so they don't have that contrast. But for me, it's trying to find out how you get stuff done with it, that kind of um, sort of arm's length uh, relationship. Have you had any you know thick of it moments? Yes, I have, um, but but only and actually I did, I did have somebody once and it kind of came in the room. It was something to do with people. I think it was something to do with some comms, some comms thing that had, had gone wrong, um, and you know they'd sort of kind of you know come in and it was all sort of um, you know sort of well shouting and. Uh, I said, hang on, so, you know, what's with the Malcolm Tucker moment? Sit down and, you know, behave sensibly. And yeah, I'm not going to be shouted at by anyone, certainly not somebody impersonating Malcolm Tucker. Um, uh, so, and then the other one is the very helpful minister. This is so funny the first week, uh, well, it happens all the time. You know, people will say, oh, that's very helpful minister. And honestly, I do try to be helpful. I thought I was being helpul. But then you you go and watch the old um, pri um, yes, yes ministers. Prime, yes, and minister. effectively, it's all, it's all like very, helpful minister very helpful minister right okay she's gone right now so it's it's those kind of moments uh, yeah. conscious of time which is another one they do all the time conscious of time which basically means shut up uh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. conscious of their time uh, so it's uh, there's yeah. all those kind yeah. of really really I find them funny moments because there is you know the people who wrote those comedies certainly uh they're mm. well observed in many yeah. ways they're well observed so there are it. there are that there are those moments but um but you know ultimately people are people people are well motivated and what you have to do is figure out how to give people the space and cover to take that you know good motivation to be able yeah. to actually have the courage to step up to take accountability for the achievement, which is actually a really difficult, but really rewarding if you do it. So, and that's the journey we're on. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's, I think that's gonna work well. And particularly in skills, you know, education in, in, in the DfE, it's quite a long-term thing. You know, a lot of these policies, you'll see the, you know, the implications of them 15 years afterwards or whatever, where, you know, and I keep saying to them, you know, there are some policies here where the rubber hits the air, but in the, in the skills agenda, 
the, the rubber hits the road pretty quickly, right? Yeah, if we do yeah, not yeah. have these skills, we will not be building that road in that place. Yeah, exactly. And if we don't have these skills, we will not be um, leading um, in science and technology or vaccine development or finance uh, or the creative industries. You know, we yeah. won't be making the next James Bond here, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. So I've got two quick fire questions for you. The first is, who is your favourite non-conservative politician? Well, actually, I have loads because I play uh, football on the Women's Parliamentary Football uh, Club, uh, which is only me and Tracy Crouch, actually, who are the Conservatives. So, you know, Louise Haig, Steph Peacock, Alison McGovern, so, and Hannah Bardell. Uh, so, so uh, and, and we do things together, right? We do things socially. Uh, so we, we've got to become really good friends. And then the two I probably worked with closely would be Jess Phillips and Layla Moran. Uh, I, I co-chaired uh, APPG Women in Work with Jess uh, and actually my colleague, Laura Farris now uh, does that and she's loving it as much as I did and Leila Moran and I were on the public accounts committee together so we did quite a lot of things with homelessness and um, and you know we got we got to be friends and, and Jess Leila and I all went to Tanzania together to see a refugee camp as well which was a deeply moving joint experience and then the one guy because I was conscious they're all girls uh, is probably George Howarth who's the nosy MP um, because uh, you know my mum and dad are like oh have you met him I've not you know nobody's met him right so uh, so I, I made a point of meeting him and you know quite often I'll have a drink with him and he's from the area as well um, and yeah he's uh, you know we've we've got he's a he's a bit older than me but we've got a sort of common experience and I'm sure we probably know loads of people in common but we haven't dared to go there yet. And finally what's your biggest bugbear of politics? I think it is definitely um, the, the sort of people seeing the party before the person identity yeah. politics dehumanizing people um, dehumanizing people who are trying to do their best and um, you know and, and obviously every element of of armchair warriors and keyboard warriors uh, on Twitter who are particularly those that are abusive so I think that mm. is my biggest bugbear and it, it, it's it, yeah I, I don't know when it happened but um, you know I don't I, I have lots of friends in different parties because I see the people first yeah. and their it's motivations so genuinely actually i forgot i love asking best advice what advice have you been given that you would like to pass on my dad's advice probably bearing in mind the skills agenda uh, which he said to me you know just remember an hour is always an hour the only thing you can change in life which will change your life is how much you earn in that hour and the only way you'll change that is having skills that somebody wants very good Gillian, thank you so much for coming on Thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that, please leave a review and subscribe and tell your friends and family. And far more importantly, if you know of women who you think should consider becoming a politician or an MP, let them know or let them know via Twitter by tagging them and using the hashtag AskHerToStand. And if you have any questions for me, please contact me on Twitter I'm at Laura Round and I would love to hear from you. Thank you. Until next time.